I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the Biden administration's reset on COVID-19 and what is going on in Afghanistan with the COVID response there, I have with us my dear friend and colleague and partner in the Coronavirus Crisis Update podcast, Dr. Steve Morrison, the head of CSIS's Global Health Program and a senior VP at CSIS. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be back together again with you. Steve, so today is Thursday. It's September 9th. Tonight, President Biden is going to be giving an address to the nation where he's going to hit the reset button on the administration's efforts to fight COVID. But the big ticket item that's coming out of this is that he has mandated vaccinations for everyone in the federal government. So one of the things that's really fascinating about this is our friend Larry Gostin over at Georgetown, who we had on our last podcast, says in the New York Times, he says, quote, never before have we mandated a vaccine throughout the federal workforce, the National Guard, among government contractors, and also using the bully pulpit to try to influence businesses and universities and cities and states to do the same. So this is pretty big. It's very big. It's very significant. Let me first explain what I think is motivating this reversal, right? Just a short while ago, the administration was saying we're going to pivot in the summertime. We're going to pivot towards normality. We're going to be able to live without masks, those of us who are fully vaccinated. We're going to be able to return to the sort of activities that we've been missing during this pandemic. And we've discovered this summer that that sort of rush to normality is premature, that we underestimated the force of the Delta variant, which is so much more aggressive, pernicious, wily, and dangerous than the, than the original virus. We didn't understand how uh, those who were vaccinated, how fast immunity is, is declining. We didn't understand the degree to which the change of behavior in people giving up on masks, giving up on social distancing, moving around, the mobility going through the roof, that this was going to accelerate transmission. So where are we today? We're in another big surge. We're back to over 150,000 cases, infections per day. We need to get back to 10,000 or less in order to feel like we have control. And we were getting close to that number in June. At one point, we were down to about 12,000. Now we're at 150 and heading towards a peak probably next week or the week after that could push us towards 180 or 200,000. We're at 1,500 deaths. That's not nearly as high as early January when we peaked at 3,400. That says that having 85% of people fully vaccinated over 65 years of age is protecting that population. But much younger people, unvaccinated in particular, are coming into hospitals, getting extremely sick, and 1,500 of them are dying. And our hospitals are, we're at 110,000 ICU beds filled in the United States. See, let me throw this stat out at you. Reuters data showed that last week exceeded 40 million cases. It shows that more than 
20,800 people died in the United States in the past two weeks, which is up 67% from the prior two-week period. And as you said, hospitalizations have grown with seven U.S. states, Alaska, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Washington State, all reporting records this month. Right. So this is caused within the administration. This has caused alarm. We see our medical system in so many states under stress. We're seeing surges appear in areas that we thought weren't going to have surges. We keep in mind, we have within our population in the United States, we have a lot of kindling for the Delta variant to fire up. We've got 73 million adults who are unvaccinated, and we've got 48 million children under 12 who are not yet eligible for vaccines. We're 53, 54% of our population fully vaccinated, 75% adults with at least one dose. That's major progress, but we still have massive volume of people who are unvaccinated. And now we know that those who are fully vaccinated, if their behavior is putting them at risk and they're seeing declining immunity, they're susceptible to breakthrough infections, which is a phenomenon that we're now struggling with. We're moving towards introducing boosters. We can talk a little bit more about that. The administration is coming at this for a couple of reasons. One is just what we've discussed, the surge itself and what it's showing to us. And we're heading into the fall and people are going to go indoors. We're going to get into the winter. So this current surge will peak in the middle part of this month and begin to tailor down. And then we're going to hit the winter and in December and, and, and beyond, things are going to start going back up. Second thing is that the Biden administration pinned its legitimacy and its promise to the American public that it would tackle this pandemic decisively and in a very strategic way. And it's pinned its hopes and it's stumbled recently in a variety of ways. And people are questioning its competency. There's confusion around guidance on masks. There's confusion surrounding booster approaches. There's a sense that there was a premature declaration of mission accomplished and a return to to normality. So they are trying to regain the leadership position in this period. On the mandate, this shift to mandate, it is applies to 2.1 million federal workers plus another almost 2 million contractors. They take away the option of opting for testing and saying, you've got 75 days to get fully vaccinated. And if you don't do that, you, you could be terminated. There are some exemptions around medical and religious reasons, but this is a major, major step. And the hope here is that this will set a model for states, for businesses, for schools to follow this example. We are moving into a period of mandates in trying to narrow the population that's unvaccinated. It doesn't address what we're going to do about children, but it begins to tackle this question. The people that are in the movable middle, those who are hesitant to get vaccinated, had legitimate questions to answer and the like. That population has shrunk steadily from over 35% six or eight months ago to today about 15%. And the effort here is to get that number way down rapidly. There's about 14% of our population who are thought to be pretty hardcore refusals. But if they are facing an inability to work or they're facing an inability to go to school or they, we may see businesses, whether it's restaurants or stores or whatever, 
stadiums for sporting events begin to put their own mandates in force, the idea is that that will begin to change behavior and choices. And that that is a very big change. So you can't go to an LSU football game if you're not vaccinated. You can't go to school at the University of Rochester if you're not vaccinated. But why can't the federal government mandate that all of us get vaccinated? Because they can't, right? The federal government is very reluctant to, to mandate this but for the states. You see what it's doing is it's it has authority over federal employees and contractors, and that's the power that it's using. But it does not have constitutional power to dictate to states. Right. It has the ability to use the federal fisc against states and to motivate them by either amping up or denying funding for any number of things. And we'll see what happens in the president's discussions today as to how many of these levers is he going to use. For instance, when the drinking age in the United States was changed from 18 to 21, there was a threat to states that were lagging behind that we're going to withhold your highway funding, your federal highway funding, if you don't raise the drinking age from 18 to 21. So eventually all the states, including even Louisiana, complied. Right. So isn't this the same kind of thing that could happen here? It's very similar. The other thing I want to mention here is that this is a very deliberate and strong pushback on Governor DeSantis in Florida, Governor Abbott in Texas, Governor Ducey in Arizona. There have been flagrant and outrageous positions on masking and vaccinations taken by those governors they have intervened in the ability of education districts and counties and district authorities within their states operating on masking and the like. And uh, that has triggered shifts in opinion in those states and, and court challenges and the like. And I believe that these governors have overplayed their hand. They are trying to out-Trump Trump, and they're doing it in the middle of a crisis in which the death rates and infection rates and extreme illness rates in these states are off the charts, and the medical system is strained to the limit. And it's in exactly those circumstances when the public changes opinion and begins to say, wait a second, this is really quite dangerous. We need to change. And so the calculation is to come back at those governors. So there is a political motive here. And, and the 2022 electoral cycle is, is in the background here and the sense that uh, we need to fight back. Also, changing the conversation away from Afghanistan is part of this calculation as well. And, but the big desire is to get back ahead of this pandemic and to demonstrate leadership and competency and to restore people's sense that there's clarity and, and not confusion, but there's a strategy and there's a clear strategy and it's and it's moving forward. Steve, has the White House had a hard time focusing on the covid problem while Afghanistan has been flaring? I, I don't think domestically it's affected it. I think that there was some missteps on the booster announcements where the September 20th date, the announcement of the ap approval, the licensure for Pfizer before they had the FDA and CDC final steps on that, and then announcing that they would be moving towards this September 20th. They're now having to walk some of that back. The polling is showing that the public is very confused about boosters. 
And that's a whole separate conversation. That, I think, is a reflection of multiple things that are untied to Afghanistan. It's, it's that we didn't have a clear scientific consensus, that we had a big scientific debate. There was a desire by the politicians in the White House to, to, to show leadership, and they got ahead of the scientists who were debating themselves. And the science itself is confusing. And it's fast moving and evolving. And whenever we have fast changing science, you're back into this. Well, wait a second. What did they tell us six weeks ago? You're like, well, the virus is changing and the science is changing. And what applied two months ago, we now need to revise. So we're back into that confusion that comes from being in a fast moving pandemic. Now, some are calling COVID the forever virus, echoing, of course, our forever wars. Now, in a sense, it is a forever virus because it's an endemic. What do you think of that terminology? We're in a long war. We're not in a short war. I don't know that we're in a forever war. I think we've had to recalibrate significantly the timeline here. And people are exhausted. People are frustrated. We're a deeply polarized country. We're prone to anger. We're prone to allegations and recriminations and the like. And and yes, this is appearing as if we are going to have to manage this. We're not going to eliminate it. It's going to continue to morph. People realize now that uncontrolled transmission here and outside our borders is generating uncontrolled replication of the virus and mutations. And so we don't know if we've peaked with Delta or whether something worse is on the horizon. But over time, you'd think from past viral pandemics that this would begin to morph into something that becomes more manageable. But we don't know when that's going to happen or how that's going to happen. I wouldn't rush to the conclusion that this, what we're in today is going to last indefinitely. I mean, we are moving towards greater control within our own population. We are going to move towards a three-dose regimen that will dramatically increase protections We're going to get to children by the end of this year or early part of next year. That will be a vitally important step. And we're going to have to come to terms with the gaps outside our borders if we're going to get control over this. And U.S. leadership is leaning in that direction and going to do more. The Biden administration is about to announce a summit, calling a summit at the U.N. General Assembly on the COVID response, a very welcome step, a very essential step. We've had a shocking absence of high-level diplomacy in the almost two years of this pandemic, and the Biden administration stepping forward to begin a process of high-level summitry around this, and that's very welcome. So there is cause for some optimism here. We have to be optimistic, and this is an administration that is struggling to revise its approaches both at home and abroad. And in both domains, they're imperfect, but they're vastly better than what we had before. Let's be honest. Let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute, Steve. What what does the Taliban coming to power mean for health in Afghanistan, including the COVID response? And and while we're talking about COVID, let's talk about polio as well. Thank you. My, My feeling today, and I've been talking to people who are in Kabul and in the region engaged in the negotiations on what happens next. My sense is that we are right on the precipice of a a, a rapidly worsening crisis, uh, that we could see the collapse of the health system. The 2000 health 
centers within Afghanistan, salaries are frozen, people are not getting paid, supply chains are frozen. The gains that have been made, very fragile gains, but very important gains in the last 20 years in the health sector in Afghanistan, going from really basement levels, the worst imaginable maternal mortality rates, the worst imaginable child mortality rates, to pretty, you know, major gains in life expectancy, maternal mortality gains and the like. Still enormous work to to be done, but this was funded predominantly through the EU, the World Bank, and the U.S. government. All of those flows are frozen at the moment, and we don't know when that's going to happen, and there's not a lot of time before we see a collapse. In the meantime, the economy itself is paralyzed. And what does that mean in terms of suffering, humanitarian emergency, and instability? We have now in Kabul, we have Martin Griffiths, the Undersecretary Generals of the UN, head of UN OCHA, the coordinating operational coordination on the humanitarian emergency response. We have Peter Marar, the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. We have others in there trying to negotiate a way forward in preparation for Monday's meeting in Geneva, the pledging conference of donors, in which people are going to ask, can NGOs, can international organizations operate in this environment with their security guaranteed, with their ability to travel, their ability to deploy their female workers as well as their male workers, to be able to serve women and girls as well as boys and men. All of these things are getting worked out and they haven't been resolved. And the first, the most recent steps, the creation of this government of purely Taliban with some real hardliners in there, no women, no reference to women in their three-page statement on Tuesday, has set people back with the Haqqanis there. The, we've got two figures that are in that government who, who have bounties on their heads by the FBI. You're talking about uh, Siraj Haqqani, who is, was named interior minister, head of the Haqqani network, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, is, this is a extremely delicate and difficult process of negotiations. And, and I just, I think the risk is enormous that we're going to see a decay and regression in the delivery of health services when it's, it was already fragile. And now look at the circumstances. And I don't think this is going to get worked out very rapidly. In the meantime, the big risk is the econo- economy implodes and we have a runaway humanitarian emergency along with social instability and the like. And that is weighing very heavily on people. On the question of COVID and the question of polio, on COVID, before August 15th, when a Taliban took control of the country and entered Kabul, COVID-19 efforts, the response efforts were very, very, very uh, tiny. There had been 150,000 cases, about 7,000 deaths recorded, but the surveillance and recording system is very, very partial and imperfect. The vaccination rates, 38 million people, less than 2%, far less than 1%, in fact, fully vaccinated. When the Taliban entered, the, the testing and vaccination rates plummeted by 80% and they have not recovered. So things are on hold. We got lots of people moving, lots of people congested in large gatherings. So we have lots of transmission opportunities, super spreader opportunities and the like. This has been a concern, obviously, with the populations, the 125,000 people that were evacuated out of the Kabul airport 
through the U.S. efforts. Lots of worry there about the population transmission of that as well as measles and the like. So this, this is something that needs to be attended to amidst all of these other crises. In terms of polio, there's been lots of negotiations, quiet negotiations with the Taliban ongoing for some time that show some promise of being able to move towards mosque-to-mosque vaccination efforts and door-to-door vaccination efforts. The Taliban had stopped for three years door-to-door vaccination because of the aerial campaign and in the aftermath of the Abbottabad incident in which the U.S. government used a, a rogue, fake doctor vaccinator in order to collect uh, genetic material from Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. And that, but those security considerations are now gone and there's promising negotiations. There's only been one reported case of wild virus polio this year in Afghanistan and only one case reported in Pakistan. These are the last two reservoirs in the world of, of polio. That's a reflection of how much isolation there has been this year. So there is an opportunity to move forward and the systems are there. The polio campaign, 85% of their staff, predominantly women and predominantly Afghans, are in place and able to function if they have the ability to do that. And the funding streams through UNICEF and WHO have not been disrupted in the same fashion that the broader health have. So I'm I'm hopeful we may see some some gains, but you know, in the bigger picture, it's it could get lost. It could get lost if this crisis escalates in the multiple ways that I've just mentioned. What does the crisis do in terms of U.S. efforts to mobilize high-level commitments in addressing the global vaccine crisis? Well, um, that remains to be seen. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the Biden administration is planning to hold a summit. We haven't seen the full details of this, but it's been announced during the U.N. General Assembly in the third week of September a very good sign. We'll see exactly what that generates in terms of concrete commitments, new concrete commitments by the United States in league with our partners. You know, at the G7, there was great disappointment that we couldn't get other G7 members to step forward. We put on the table 500 million Pfizer doses that we purchased at 3.5 billion. The British came in with a pledge of 100 million doses. The Canadians at 13 million. Those are fairly paltry. We didn't really see others coming forward with very significant uh, commitments in that level. Maybe we'll see more this time around. Maybe we'll see more in terms of international commitments on pandemic financing, that we need more financing, we need more support to low and middle income countries for readiness, for their ability to deliver vaccines. So we need better cooperation on data and surveillance. So let's, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, my own gut says that Afghanistan has had a profound impact. It's unsettled this administration at the highest levels in terms of just psychologically and politically. And that has some consequences in terms of the amount of energy, psychic energy available to dedicate to this other global pressing urgent matter. But let's hope that we can, we can do both. We can respond and manage both. And let's see. Steve, a lot to think about here. Thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about COVID and Afghanistan in this really difficult time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. This has been terrific. Appreciate it. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 